0: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
1: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. We are lucky today to have with us Joseph Cannon. Joe has more wisdom about the craft and the business side of writing than anyone I know. Through the 80s and early 90s, he was CEO of Dutton and also an executive at Houghton Mifflin. These are two of the most prestigious publishing houses in the world. Joe then made a splash around 1995 when this revered publishing executive uh, was known to be writing a manuscript for a novel of his own. And then there was a scramble for the publishing rights to this book, because it was also getting out that this was an excellent, excellent new novel, which became Los Alamos, published in 1997. And from there, Joe never looked back. He's written 10 spy thrillers, including The Good German, which was made into a movie starring George Clooney and Kate Blanchett. And his latest novel is The Berlin Exchange. Joe, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. Well, before we get into how and where we met, let's have a little wine. You chose white wine for today. And so we have a a white burgundy to to pour out for each of us. What could be nicer? After a hard day's work of writing. Cheers, Joe. Cheers to to you. Uh, So we'll begin at the beginning. You were born in Pennsylvania, and I think you're sort of on the early side of Baby Boomer.
2: I mean, an exact Baby Boomer, nine months after VJ Day. Right. it doesn't get more baby boom than that. Anyway, May 46.
1: And then uh, Harvard undergrad.
2: Harvard undergrad and did another degree at Cambridge in England and then came back and was in publishing. My first job was when I was still an undergraduate. I started working for what was then the Atlantic Monthly Magazine Mm -hmm. in Boston. And in a sense, I never left. I stayed on my last two years of college as one of their junior readers Worked for a London publisher, came back to America, and then worked in New mm-hmm. York. And I thought I would work forever in publishing. And so, it wasn't that I had manuscripts in drawers and was secretly writing a book. It, it didn't occur to me. I liked publishing. I never imagined, I mean, obviously, if you're in the business and you fell into publishing, you love books and you care about people who write them, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't that I was having these secret manuscripts that I didn't tell anybody about. I was mm-hmm. busy being a publisher.
1: So you enter publishing in the in the sixties or so. Right. Right. And now how the business back then that was a little bit more of the martini lunch and big book parties for for authors coming out with their new books?
2: It's true. I mean, all of that stuff that you now read about did happen. I came at the tail end of it. I mean, these were people who indeed I would go to lunch with various agents who would have two or three martinis, but even then it was changing and becoming more Perrier and Lyme. Mm-hmm. etc it was just people couldn't work when they got back to the office in the afternoon so you know things got more serious
1: and and there there are changes beyond that too in distribution and you know we'd look at the number of independent bookstores there were back in the 60s 70s 80s going to chains then to Amazon there were no ebooks rapid printing was different I mean, how what are some of the big differences in the business as it as it stands out to you now
2: you know i mean the easy way to answer this is to say yes much has changed but much is still the same. Um, you know, we can now actually produce a book almost instantaneously, but it still takes about nine months to 12 months to actually publish it and do catalogs and go out to the public with advanced copies, uh, get blurbs, you know, all of those things that are still very much part of the process. were are part of it then. What's changed, of course, is what's changed everything is the internet. And I think it's true that there has been a concentration of buyers. I mean, you can now, your first sale, so to speak, uh, essentially is to two or three people, as opposed to all the many independent bookstores that you would sell individually. That's both good and bad. It's efficient, but it also means that if the, if one of those two or three buyers doesn't respond to the book, um, you've got a big hole in your projected revenues for the sale of the first cop first printing.
1: You know, it's, it's funny when I have when talked to people who are on the editorial and the the book buying side of it, you know, people at Simon & Schuster who are, who are looking at the books, when books were submitted in the old days prior to the internet, prior to email, they'd, you know, the agent and the author, they'd print out one big copy and they'd mail it around and then- hey. Uh, someone read it, and they'd either buy it or they'd pass, and then they'd send it back, and that same thing would get mailed to the next. So if you're if you're a book buyer, if you're the editor, and you get this well-thumbed manuscript, you'd know you're about you the know. fourth or fifth to see it.
2: You knew, and yeah. particu- and you know, this was still the age of carbon copies, and you know, Xerox was new, so it was you know like that. Yes, what it also meant, of course, is that there were fewer mass submissions and fewer auctions. They Often these manuscripts would be sent individually and make the rounds to various editors, and finally someone would either fall in love with it or no one would. Now what happens is that it goes out to about 20 houses just with the flick of a finger on a switch, and everybody is considering it at once. I mean, this puts a lot of So there of were less
1: auctions back then. So the audience knows now, you know, yeah. you email it out to 30 publishers, and they get about two weeks or so to read it and respond with their interest or no interest— and if they have interest, then the author will run around and take meetings with anyone who expressed interest. And that can take course over a couple of days. Right. Almost all of it's in Midtown Manhattan, but uh, it can be elsewhere. And then there's an auction date set up. So the writer's agent will say, okay, on this date, submit your best and final bid. And anyone who wants to make a bid on the book will then participate in the auction. But And that's how it happens now. You know, So it all starts with an email to 30 publishers and goes down the funnel to a couple of bids on a book. But were there no auctions back in the 60s, 70s as much?
2: There were, but there were fewer of them, partly because, I mean, now we have the capability of auctioning anything. Um, If it were a a particularly desirable book or by a well-known writer, and you know that there were more than one interested player, sure, you'd set up an auction. But if it were, let's say, a manuscript of a first novel, and it was fine, but it wasn't going to set the world on fire, you would send it out one by one. You just, they just didn't have the capability of having... I mean, it's convenient to have everybody's answer at once. It can also be depressing. I mean, the case that you're talking about is a best-case thing where you actually set up an auction date and somebody wants it. Mm-hmm. It can also be the case that nobody responds. Um, but then again, you get to hear it a lot more quickly than you used to in the old days. It just took more time. It was also... I mean, if we're thinking about the difference between the business now and then, I think it was. it's fair to say that it was certainly more social, There was um, it was also more eccentric. There was a lot of room for uh, characters and people who liked to act out being a character. In that sense, um, but it sounds old boyish on the
1: on the publishing side, or both
2: on the publishing side. I mean, it's a little old boyish to say it because it means that you're saying that things were more fun than they weren't necessarily, and they certainly weren't as efficient as they are now. But there was nevertheless uh, a community. In publishing, you know, everybody—it's—it's it's not unlike Hollywood in the sense that once you're in that business, there's a uh, musical chairs effect with jobs. People tend to go from house to house depending on what the opportunities are. They get to know the people there. They—if you're a part of a cohort, if you're one of the assistants who start right after college in one of the houses, the people who are your peer group um, often stay with you for the rest of that life, of your publishing life, so that they're now running. Simon and Schuster let's say were one of the companies but you knew them when they were just, you know, kids on the block. That sort of thing was I think tighter then. I don't know whether that's better or worse. It was just fun.
1: Yeah, it it seems to have been a there seems to have been of a sense of it was really a calling then, which probably still exists to some extent today but just maybe a bit less so.
2: It was particularly so then because the pay was so terrible. And so either you had people who didn't care one way or the other because they didn't have to, or people for whom it really was an avocation, you said, mm-hmm. it, it's worth it to me to d- be doing this. Uh, if I wanted to sell soap, I'd sell soap, but I'm selling books, and that makes all the difference. So you ultimately left the, the publishing
1: side of the business, but before we get into your big success as a writer, I want to talk a bit about your writing process, and to start how you start a book, Jennifer Regan says that when she starts a new book, before themes and characters or anything like that. She starts with place, a sense of atmosphere for the book. How do you How do you feel about that? How do you start yours?
2: Almost exactly the same. Um, place, in fact, becomes, a, and I think this is true for Jennifer too, but it, it becomes a character in these books. I mean, a, cl- a classic example of how this process operates would be, I did a book called Istanbul Passage, which is set in Istanbul. And the origin of the book is that I was there on vacation. And I fell in love with it, which is not hard. Everybody does. It's one of the great cities. And I just wanted to know everything about it. So I kept reading, reading, reading. And most of the books ended with Ataturk. And I thought, but what happened during the war? What was it like then? This is a neutral capital. It's about 18 kilometers from the war zone. What was that like? And of course, it becomes a listening post for espionage. It was The original Rick's Cafe, I mean, you could go to the Park Hotel at night and there would be somebody spying for Germany and Japan and Britain and America, and there they all were having drinks together, you know. It was said that the bartender worked for no fewer than two or three of these agencies at the same time. And I thought, well, this is all fun and this is interesting, but what happens after? What happens to all these people who've been having Casablanca-like moments? And now the war's over. What do you do do with these people? So it started there. And the more you think about the place, the more the streets fill up with characters, you begin to see what it's like. I mean, I love researching the physicality of a place, the geography, I think. Where does your character live? What what would have been a desirable neighborhood? Uh, Could you walk to work? Would you need to take a tram? I mean, all of those things that don't necessarily, in the end, appear in the book, but I think appear in your head so that when you're writing them, uh, you are on the Iskatil Cadesi or you're on one of these streets, and it's important I think for the book to have that kind of conviction mm-hmm. So
1: speaking of place and at the risk of you getting mobbed by your fans tomorrow morning, I will mention that the place where you write is the New York Public Library main branch in Midtown, which is also the place where you and I met many years ago.
2: That is correct. right. I was you know I was used to going to an office. And, you know, getting up and going to work. And I It never occurred to me to work at home. Aside from anything else, my wife works at home, and, um, you know, that gets to be a crowded office. So I started by going to the main reading room in the public library, and it's a magnificent building. It People leave you alone. The resources are, you know, unparalleled anywhere else. I mean, there's almost nothing you can find if you're researching a given mm-hmm. topic. Um, it suited me. I liked it. And in those days, they didn't have ports for laptops when i first started so i started writing in longhand on yellow legal pads and i still do it i you know i think writers can be superstitious about these kind of things ultimately does it really matter i don't know probably not but it does to me cuz i'm used to doing it that way it's funny you and i have a lot in
1: common so i i was i used to you and i both started writing as sort of a second career i used to have a business job and then started for working at home. And I thought, my God, I have got to get out of this home or I'm going to go <laughs> bananas in here. So at the time, living in Manhattan, wandered down to the main branch of the library because I was also doing a book that required a bunch of research. And that Rose Reading Room, those tables are beautiful and and uh, it really is an inspiring place to work. And so I think the librarians had some sort of cocktail party one evening where I, where I first met you and a number of other writers who were down there on a pretty regular beat, getting getting their work done. But before we move on from that, would you tell the story, if it's not too traumatizing for you to go back to that moment of when you
2: left your desk for a moment and what happened to your work? Uh, this was when I was in the main reading room. And usually people leave you alone and everybody's very polite. And it never occurred to me to worry about anything. And I had just got up and gone to the men's room. And when I came back, I saw that my yellow legal pad had been lifted. Somebody had just taken it, not, I think, for what I was writing, but just to have the pad itself. And I imagine that when they got out to the street and they saw that only half of it was still the tablet, the other half was about 10 or 15 pages of things that I had written, like a whole big scene. And I'm sure they just dumped it in a trash can or something, but it was gone.
1: So out there somewhere is a chapter of a great Joe Cannon novel.
2: There you go. So I mentioned this to one of the librarians and who said, "Oh, I think it's time for you to get into one of the study rooms." And there are certain rooms set aside in the library for people who are actively writing books and often need those kind of research resources, etc. It's it's just a wonderful thing the library does. And he said, "Why don't you finish the book in here?" And so I've been there ever since.
1: That's great. Now, are you an outliner?
2: No. And I tend to make it up as I go along. I mean, at a certain point, you have to, if it's, for instance, a thriller, you have to know at some point who actually did it. But, um, for instance, in The Good German, I, I was a third of the way into the book before I decided who had actually killed the person who died in the first chapter. I mean, for me, that's part of the fun of it. Well, fun may, may be a frivolous word. But it's part of what makes it interesting. I think if I were just following an outline, uh, then I already know what's going to happen. You know, it Takes
1: a little energy out of the yeah. out of the writing itself. How about your editorial background? You, you've revised and edited so many other manuscripts. How do you self-edit, self-revise?
2: You keep they're separate skill sets. You know, I mean, having been an editor did not in any way prepare me for being a writer. Um, in fact, if anything, it becomes a negative because you're so sensitive to things looking wrong on the page or. Uh, infelicitous or, you know, et cetera, that you tend to be overly critical. I mean, it's important as you're writing to just get it down. You can always go back and fix it. But if you're hamstrung that way, I think it can be a real drawback. So I try not to let that happen. I, where it becomes a more interesting, I think, carryover is when you're actually publishing a book, because I know all the things that can go wrong and I know how they go wrong. And I can only hope this makes me an easier author to deal with because I tend to be sympathetic to the publisher and say, yeah, I get it, I know, I mean, we've all been there. It's, it's difficult. You know, if you're a publisher, you can be publishing anything like from between 150 to 200 titles a year. If you're a writer, you're publishing one. And that difference in the field of concentration and how much time is going to be devoted to it... You know, never makes for a happy marriage. It's always, you know, what are you doing for me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the publisher is busy. He's got a lot of other stuff on his plate,
1: right? Yeah, including, you know, if they're running the imprint, which sometimes they're also the ones acquiring books. Not only do they have a few other books on their plate, they've they've got a whole team to manage and P and L to meet.
2: And let us never forget, you know, the ego of writers, which is <laughs> from time to
1: time difficult to deal with. Yeah, the more successful they are, the more the more difficult usually is, is a correlation. So Los Alamos is a huge success in 97, and it would have to be, f- I mean, for you to move away from what was a huge success of a, of a prior career. And fortunately you continue to follow that up with terrific books. The Good German, I think, was your third book, which came out in two thousand one, so four years later. By 06, that's out as a movie with Clooney and Kate Blanchett, and directed by Steven Soderbergh. Did you get to interact much with that team doing the movie?
2: I went and hung out on the set for a few days because if you can, you, you know, it's a really fun thing to do and you really like to do it. Where but, was the set for that? Um, it was on the old Columbia lot. It was, you know, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And w- what had happened was that Soderbergh was interested in the project because he wanted to make a 40s movie um, to to the extent that he even used camera lenses that would have been available at the studios in the 40s. And this was going to be an almost um, hyper-characteristic Warner Brothers noir film from the 40s and this attracted him it was part of the reason that he wanted to do the project so it was fine by me etc but I had nothing to do with the actual um writing of the movie that's uh, very rare that a writer that a novelist actually gets to do that because they prefer to use
1: their own screenwriters their yeah own screenwriters did you did you push to have that at all or want to do that
2: I knew it was not going to happen, so I didn't push it. I mean, you know, that was the other thing about having been on the other side of the desk and seeing so many people go through this process. It's always the writer is feeling aggrieved and, oh, what have they done to my baby? And they've, they're ruining my book, etc. And you want to say, look, grow up. You know, what's happening here is that the book you wrote, for better or for worse, is still on the shelf exactly the way you wrote it. And that's what you've done. Now a motion picture is going to be made that is somehow suggested by, inspired by, based on whatever phrase you want to use. But it's not an illustrated version of the novel. It's a work unto itself. Right. The best you can hope for is that you get some talented people who are going to be inspired in the right way and come up with something terrific, uh, at which point you should just step aside and let them be terrific about it. So I just wanted it's to... It's interesting. I've, I've
1: seen different authors take different... Paths on that Hemingway is sort of the classic. He has that line of like, I would drive up to the California border, drop off my novel, and collect the check, and head the other way. I don't want anything to do with a film version of my book. And uh, I know Scott Tureaud. I think he tried doing a little bit of writing on the film versions, and then decided this is not for me, and really returned to the novel. Whereas others like Dennis Lehane has taken to film and TV writing like a fish to water. He's he's terrific at it, and I think. Even though he's written some amazing novels like Mystic River and Shutter Island, which had film success as well, I think he finds himself now preferring to write for TV and film. He was just doing the showrunner position for Mr. Mercedes, which is a Stephen King-based TV show. And I think Dennis has had a ton of success success in in the TV side.
2: You know, look, would I like to do it? Sure. I think it would be really interesting um, to do. Do I prefer doing it to writing novels? No. I don't know how many... You know, there's not a lot of time. You Mm -hmm. can't do everything. And I think that one of the great appeals of writing novels is that essentially you're making a movie in your head and you get to do everything. You play all the parts. You're the director. You're the set designer, et cetera, et cetera. You're in control. This can never happen on a movie which is, by its nature, I mean, famously collaborative. And if you watch it being made and happen, you see how very real this is. Um, It's... Everybody's at the top of their game. I mean, these are professional people who really care about what they're doing. The prop person, for instance, is you know concerned with what cigarette package is on this table in a nightclub scene. And there's a level of detail that's absolutely admirable. And you think, it's terrific. It's really fun to watch this all happen. But it's not what I do. I'm doing something else. So it, it may be convenient for them that I'm not asking.
1: Well, I mean, it is you have to make your choices really as a writer here, and it's interesting the explosion of content across these streaming platforms, which is a, yeah. a fairly new phenomenon. I always hear it talked about in the context of attention for you know the consumer's attention. There are only so many hours you can watch a show or you can read a novel, and so the explosion of content across streaming limits the number of hours available to book reading and book buying. And I think that's true, of course, but I never hear that explosion talked about in the context of available input, the, the writers themselves and the competition for good writers. Because in terms of writing a novel, that is a tough path to plow. It, it can, as you say, it can take a year or eight years to write a novel. And financially, it's fairly uncertain. You get your advance, but right. then if book sales aren't so great, you know the next advance could be smaller if you get one at all. And the vast... Majority of novelists need to supplement their income with something else. On the on the new content, writing for one of these thousands and thousands of scripted television shows, if you get into a writer's room, you know, there's a steady paycheck, it gets picked up for the next season, you've got kind of a steady job. It's a little more glamorous, you know, as we were saying, novel book buying business, it's a little less glamorous than it was 40 years ago. And this is sort of the new glamour, and I think for young writers, I, do you feel that? Streaming content is siphoning some of our talented young writers away from novel writing toward film and TV
2: writing. Well, if it is, so what? You know, I mean, essentially, if the talent is being expressed in whatever form that seems its most natural channel, that's we're the ones who profit from it. It's terrific. I mean, I prefer doing novels because that's what I've learned to do, and it's what I do. Um. I'm like any other consumer. I mean, particularly during the pandemic, I would binge watch lots of series. Frankly, uh, what I really hope will happen now is that we'll go back to the time when movies were 90 minutes or 80 minutes and they just had sharp dialogue and a real... They weren't lazy. They didn't have 13 episodes. They had 80 minutes, you know, and it had to be good. I would love to see that come back. Um, I've never particularly been interested in Doing a series of or a sequel to any of the books. I mean, to me, when it says the end, it's the end. It's, it's you know, somebody once said, What happens to them And Los Alamos? I said, Oh, I don't know. They get married and get a horse farm. I, you know, who knows? It ends when it ends. Um, I think that this extension uh, sort of concept that that binge watching has made possible and the, the streaming, et cetera, et cetera. What can I say? I mean, there's you can't object to it. It's it is what it is. People enjoy it. They watch it. It's been very successful. And so long as it is successful, I think it'll be. They'll continue with it. But I think there's also a place for the shorter form and for what I think of as real movies, which um, are sort of units unto themselves. They're not so open-ended. Those I would like to see more of. But that mm-hmm. would depend, I think, on how we're viewing all of this. Is it a drain on talent? I don't think so. I think that um, all you really need to do a novel is a piece of paper and a pen. To do a series, you probably need $100 million and everyone else committing to it and HBO executives or whoever giving a green light. That's a very different process. Um, There are fewer of them, I think, than we imagine. We just feel more overwhelmed because it's a relatively new form. But think how many books are being published Talking about thousands and thousands of new books, but come fewer out every year. fewer
1: these days than twenty years ago, thirty years ago. I don't know.
2: I don't know. I mean, it's still quite a lot. Well, I guess. I mean, the self we could also yeah. argue too many.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. I mean, there's, but I I think and my understanding is that most of the the big houses are a little more selective about the number of books they're putting out each year. They're they're sort of getting behind fewer titles, and pub, pub, and overall publishing a, a lower amount of titles.
2: I don't, know. I, I don't know, actually, is, is the real answer to that. But if you look at P.W. or Kirkus, I mean, any of the trade review publications, which I do because they come to the house, um, it doesn't seem to me that they're publishing fewer. There are just a ton of books out there. Mm. And often, which is encouraging, some really good books. I mean, it isn't, I think, that as a form or format that it's in any way dying out. I think that there's a lot of talent being poured into novels these days and different kinds of stories and more inclusive and uh, there's uh, you never run out of books I mean if we were going to go away next week I don't know to some island for a vacation I have a whole stack of things that I've been dying to get to I can't wait to read them you just I don't know that I feel that way about what's coming out in the movies this season as opposed to the way I used to right
1: did you ever have a mentor
2: sure I think that Well, to say that everyone does is, you know, how do I know if everyone does? But I think a lot of people um, who got anywhere in this business, in publishing, that is, had somebody who looked, who recognized them and looked out for them and helped them. Uh, I certainly, when I was at The Atlantic, there was a wonderful man called William Abrams, who was an editor there, who I think just thought, oh, here's an interesting kid. What can, you know, I'm going to give him something to read and see how he works out, et cetera, et cetera. And there are other people along the way that um, are influential in your career. I think, you know, there's that old cliche, be nice to people on your way up because you'll meet the same ones on your way down. But it's, to me, one of the reasons that I think it's so pervasive a part of the culture in publishing that it's also one of the things that's suffered from the pandemic because I think the lack of... We don't get together, yeah. It's how do young people get noticed? You know, how do they really um, get the attention of people who can help them in these jobs? And I think it'll be harder for them just from the, I think it's only these few years. I don't know that it's going to extend forever. I think we'll probably have some combination of remote work and in-house work, and that will change the, you know, configuration. But I think it's been a real drawback for young people.
1: Yeah. Did you have a mentor on the writing side, would you say, or no? only through reading them?
2: I think just through reading them. I mean, someone will always say, you know, who influenced you and in all this? And the quick answer to this is everybody influences you. I mean, everything you read, because it's all part of who you are. I mean, the sister uh, question to this is always, you know, is this autobiographical? There's this wonderful feeling. People think that a book needs to be authentic. That is to say that they're reading some novel and they really want to be reading about your actual life. But in fact, every book is autobiographical in the sense that you're the one who's selecting this word. You're the one who's putting into whatever prose rhythm it has, and you're the one who's bringing the interest to it. It does not mean that, oh, this is what my mother said when I was six years old and this is what she meant. That doesn't interest me so much. What does interest me is that I think your sensibility, which is formed by everything that you've absorbed, invariably comes out in the book. So by that definition, everything is autobiographical.
1: So you have the writing side covered and the publishing side covered, yet there's a third leg of the stool at the Cannon household because your wife, Robin (laughs) Strauss, is a high-powered literary agent. And among other clients, Don DeLillo, who's, I think, on everybody's top ten list of greatest living writers— what are the home conversations like with Robin?
2: There's a strict separation of church and state. First of all, she's not my agent. I think that would be like um, you know having your spouse be your own dentist. You you know you and how could she represent me? She'd call and say, "Oh, it's his best work yet," and you know who would believe her? So I think we keep those those things separate. In fact, to the extent that I try not to read things that she's representing because I don't want to fall into the trap of over dinner somewhere saying, God, and as for that latest, and then all of a sudden you're the bad guy. So I, I don't want to get into that. On the other hand, I admire her list, and I admire the people that she does represent, um, Don certainly being um, foremost among them. I think he's a great writer and one who's, uh, you know, if there's a new book, I'm there to read it. I would really want to see it. But I think it's important that you... Does she give you any sort of friendly, professional advice? Like, Joe, I think
1: you ought to head this way, or this could be a good, you know, topic for the next book Mercifully, she
2: hasn't yet, because that's the kind of thing that can really prompt uh, a not particularly wonderful (laughs) or congenial conversation, right? She is certainly my first reader. I mean, she and my agent. And, you know, you give it to her, and you. first of all, I know that if she really doesn't like it, she'll say so, because she's going to be involved in the public, you know... I'm going to be tied up in publishing it for the next year so um, she'll make her feelings known but luckily she's liked the books or says she does and she's a very sharp attentive reader and if she makes a point about something not you know making sense or there's there's a logic question etc etc I always listen and she's in that sense my first editor I suppose but she's reading at the same time as Binky who's my agent and who is been my agent from the very start and whose opinion I rely on I mean one of the reasons that uh, she is my agent is that I know she'll always tell the truth well my wife Megan is
1: the same she's she's one of the first readers and she is also brutally honest so I'll, I'll have whole pages circled with a big red pen and an x through it with boring written in the margin and you know you know that's when you need to delete some pages there but I do get the honesty from from the wife
2: it's uh, good to have a tough skin in these matters. Though. Yes,
1: my right. gosh. So the latest is the Berlin Exchange. Now, you're you're known for, I, I've read one review, moral intrigue and, and setting up tough, tough decisions for your, your characters. You're also compared to John le Carré and Grand Green, but can you tell us a bit about the Berlin Exchange?
2: Berlin Exchange is essentially begins with a spy swap at the height of the Cold War in 63. And what's happened is that there's an American... Um, nuclear spy, who was who spied for Russia and who was caught and has been in jail for the last ten years, and out of the blue, a spy swap is being proposed from, with East Germany. And as he crosses through the wall into East Berlin, ironically enough, he's crossing into a form of freedom. He's out of jail as a result of doing this. But why has the, why have they asked for him? What's behind it? Uh, is it really his ex-wife who's uh, he hopes responsible for this or are there more nefarious things going on and of course there are more nefarious things going on or there wouldn't be a story or a book but i but to me what it's you know we return to this question about place i mean to me what this book is about is once he passes through the wall he's in the ddr in east germany and he's in a, a culture which he in some odd ironic way helped produce And now he can see the result of this. Um, So that the book becomes, I think, a lot about what was East Germany, this political anomaly, what was life like there? I mean, yes, we all know that it was gray and that um, the surveillance state par excellence because they had something like 180,000 people informing the Stasi on their neighbors, on each other. This is in a country of 20 to 30 million. You know, the, the, the proportions are just completely um, out of sight and in a sense unique there has never been such a surveillance state what's that like you know I thought I just wanted to explore it more I mean this is the third book I've done which is set in Berlin so obviously it's a place that I love and it's intriguing
1: did you do some interviews with people who grew up in that like they they start out as eight-year-olds informing on other eight-year-olds but then that becomes sort of your psyche of like oh I'm doing the job for the state like this is what I need to do
2: Yes and no. The the whole question about, I mean, I do have friends who live there and who had lived through that period. And so I would talk to them and see, you know, if you could get that kind of um, intimate detail that really helps in a novel. But for the most part, when I do this kind of research, um, I do it through printed matter or film, you know, photographs, et cetera. Um, I find that First of all, my German isn't good enough that I could actually have a conversation or an interview in German. It would have to be an English-speaking one. But I find that you know, everyone, in a sense, lies. I mean, all of our memories are uh, dramatized over time. If you go to a dinner party next week and several months later people ask you to describe it, each person at the party might describe it differently. Um, on the other hand, since they were there, they would have the weight of authority. And they said, yes, I was in East Berlin all those years, and this is what it would like. Well, sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. So you get a kind of unreliability when you're actually interviewing e- Even people. from hand accounts. Yeah. yeah, what I really prefer, and particularly if you're doing it um, further back, I mean, if it's 45 or you know, right after the war, because a lot of my books are set then— is uh, journalism that was written at the time, diaries or letters, I mean, anything that was written off so that the unspoken assumptions are so fascinating. Um, how people would refer to women. For I mean, you know, things that now maybe people would self-correct when they're talking about this is the way it was. But if you really see what they were writing at the time, I think it's really useful, and it gives you um, a greater sense of... of that time and place. Mm-hmm. I mean to me that's the meat of the book. I, I love writing about place.
1: That's right and it is interesting how language has changed and that's a theme that's come up on this show in the past, how language, even just over a few decades has changed, let alone going back to you know 45. And so when you bring that into your dialogue and you're known for writing terrific dialogue, you know capturing that as a, as a place as setting the scene for something back in a, in a Cold War period, It's important to get that through onto the page for the reader.
2: It's important without drawing attention to itself. You know, I mean, here's an example. The word swell, for instance, was in fact used all the time in the 30s and 40s. And you will see it in movies and you think, oh, this is the way slang functioned then. If you read it on the page now, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's just one of those things where you say, Oh, he's doing period stuff, you know, et cetera. So it's much better, I think, just to be neutral in a lot of this. It's also, there are some writers who use brand names. You know, he stood outside the courtyard and lit a Chesterfield. Well, he didn't think in those terms. He was lighting a cigarette. So you should just say light a cigarette. And as a matter of fact, have him light the cigarette because that wouldn't happen now, but it was certainly happening then. That's
1: great. Good advice. Now, uh, to end the show, we usually do a quick lightning round of questions. I've got a few lined up for you. If you need to steal yourself with some white wine, I'm going to do that. (laughs) So first question is one of the burning questions in the publishing business right now. Do you think Penguin Random House will successfully acquire Simon & Schuster, or is that going to get blocked?
2: My guess is that it will be blocked, but I don't know that, and it certainly doesn't come out from any inside information i Mm. i just don't know
1: i think you know it's one of those things that it's probably better for writers if it does get blocked it's nice to have more options out there and you know getting back to the the topic of auctions to buy books if there's only one or two people left to send it around to it's not going to be much of an auction right
2: and there will be in fact
1: fewer yeah favorite book as a kid when you were say younger than 14
2: Really young would be the Hardy Boys series. I certainly read all of them. Um, Mm -hmm. I liked Sherlock Holmes. But a ton of books. I mean, you know, one of the things I think that's so great about kids is that they're indiscriminate. They just, you know, you read whatever you can get your hands on. And I particularly enjoyed reading things that you weren't supposed to read. I mean, I remember once around the house... um, I would see the history of modern Europe and I thought, My mother is reading the history of modern Europe? This doesn't make any sense. It was not the sort of book she would read. And it turns out she had got a jacket from some other book and I so I opened it up and it was Peyton Place. And I thought, Oh well this is great. <laughs> so this That's is, great. Yeah. That
1: is funny. The fake the fake jacket on your mom's book.
2: The history of modern Europe indeed. I knew Who something was she trying really, to impress? something good was underneath <laughs> this, right.
1: Uh, A few of your favorite TV series that you would recommend to the audience.
2: There's a terrific Swedish show called Restaurant, which is one of those um, long binging series. Uh, I think in Swedish, it was actually called Our Time Is Now, but it's now called Restaurant, and it's about a Stockholm family that, in fact, has a restaurant, and it's the history of Sweden from post-war period up till the 60s. I think it's really terrific. I think maybe the best of all those series that I've seen is called Borgen. It's the Danish series about um, a female prime minister and is the best thing I've ever seen about parliamentary government and how it works. It's really a uh, it's magnificent. It's really highly recommended. Yeah. And I like succession and I like severance. And, you know, I'm... All the popular shows, I think, are terrific. Great.
1: Uh, who do you think is the godfather or godmother of the thriller?
2: Of the thriller thriller? I uh, Probably Holmes, but let me answer it in a different way. I mean, I think that if you're talking about espionage fiction and modern espionage fiction, we we go back again and again and again you always circle back to le Carre. i think he um legitimized it as a form he made it um a kind of literature his he was into it not only was he a wonderful writer on the page but he was interested in character and i think that that enabled that genre which had been a lot of trench coats under you know lampposts and there was a lot of kind of hokey atmospheric stuff all of a sudden, after Le Carre, it became about office life and ordinary life and the way things actually played out and happened in that world. And I think everybody who writes now about any form of espionage owes him some kind of um, thanks. Right, so he,
1: he was Tinker, Toler, T- Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Yeah. What, what are a couple titles by him that you would tell people? To well, go The ahead.
2: Spy Who Came In From the Cold... Tinker Taylor is my favorite, certainly of all of them. A perfect spy is also really wonderful, and his most autobiographical. It's very much about his life. He's terrific. If, when, but everybody is compared to him too. I mean, it's you know, if, if in a review someone says, "Oh, in the Le Carre mold," you think, "Well, they say that about everybody who writes about spies." I think the most flattering comparison, from from my point of view, would be to Graham Greene because he very much did uh, what I would like to be doing, which is to write the phrase you used before some reviewer had used it and I glommed on it because it made clear to me what I was at least trying to do, which is he writes novels of moral intrigue. They are indeed intriguing, but the great question at the heart of them is um, one that bears our thinking about. I had a line in one of the books where someone says, what do you do when there's no right thing to do? Just the wrong thing. And I think we're confronted by that kind of choice all the time. And how we make those moral decisions is very much um, what I think a lot of our writing should be about. Last question. One good piece of advice of any kind for
1: someone who would like to write or a piece of life advice, parenting advice, whatever comes to
2: mind. Parenting Let's do parenting advice because I've since become a grandparent in the past few years um the kids are all right stop worrying and let them let them be you know don't try to tell them what to, um they're really much better than you imagine i think that um all the anxieties and the apprehensions and uh, worries that we have about our kids you look at them as they grow up, and they're actually turning out to be really decent people. They just happen to be listening to different shows than you are, mm-hmm. and different music, certainly. And that's the way that's going to be. It was the way it was for us too. So just you know, get real. They're fine. It's they're true. Okay. you know, there is these so,
1: so much over-engineering of it, and for what really? I, I for one one person, a friend, gave me this analogy for it: that kids are like a car, and we're the body shop. And if the car comes in as an SUV, you can't send it back out on the road as a Ferrari. Like right. it's gonna, you, All you can do is send it back out as an SUV. Your job is to sort of fix it up a little bit and get it back out on the road. But you're not going to change it. You're not going to modify it in any significant
2: way. I think you can wash it and polish it. And right. <laughs> you're the one that does that. It's also you begin to realize as they get older how very lucky you are to have had them. You know, so that's good. So that's my advice as a parent. As a writer, I would say, just sit down and do it. You know, There's no substitute for that, and uh, it's the only way it ever gets done. And if you're not going to do it, at least read. Um, this is unlike all the other arts in the sense that it's really cumulative. It's ex- It depends on experience having piled up, and all of us who are writing books are writing on the shoulders of a whole bunch of people that came before us. You cannot do a work in prose of pure abstraction. It's always about context, and which means that you need to have had some exposure to other writers, and it builds on itself.
1: Well, Joe, congratulations on the new grandchild. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in.
2: Oh, it's been fun. Thank you. And nice wine, by the way.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: Every day, our world gets a little more connected